September 15th. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that because then it dates the show. Now no one's going to want to listen to it after the fact. But oh well, it's been ruined. I'm here with Bobby Stevens, my co-host from the Windy City. Robert, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. In a new venue once again. You're the most, you've had like 18 different venues that you've podcasted from over the duration. of I'm, this I'm easily madness. the most versatile podcast co-host you've ever had. Well, it just seems like you're experiencing homelessness or something like that but anyway we also have a great guest today friend of mine long-term friend since preschool actually coach Mm -hmm. andrew Sachs from baltimore andrew how are you good thanks for having me guys excited to be here so if you don't know andrew he's uh andrew underscore Sachs on twitter you'll also often find us collaborating on arguments (laughs) like he'll jump in i'll jump in (laughs) we'll maul people together with words uh, but Andrew owns prime sports performance uh, in the Baltimore area. He's a former collegiate baseball player. He was a catcher, um, all, all around super smart guy and a close friend of mine. So we're excited to have him here today. Uh, so Andrew, did you go yeah. outside today and did you wear a hoodie? Because I went outside today and wore a hoodie and I was very excited about it. I did not go outside today and wear a hoodie. But if I had known it was 56 degrees, I would have. I just mm. checked the weather and it looks gorgeous. It was really nice. Bob, what is it like? How much snow do you have on the ground? Chicago. There's an inch and a half right now. It's actually really nice. I'm wearing a hoodie right now, but I didn't need one outside. I know you're partial to hoodie weather, Dan. But. I mean, I think everyone likes hoodie weather. It's just just when it's like, like right now in D.C., it's going to be a high of 76 today. So that's a pretty solid like San Diego temperatures. That's big time. It's good outdoor working out weather. Yes. So let's jump to it so we don't get too far down a rabbit hole of our typical nonsense. Uh, Andrew, you're doing, obviously, strength training with tons and tons of kids. What is this, the current phase that your athletes are in at the moment? So what does September look like for your guys and gals? And what do you typically suggest for people who are – because this is like a common chunk of the year where parents are like, hey, we're kind of transitioning. What should we do? What are the smart things to do? So what do you got? It kind of depends. Um, the phase that they're in right now depends on whether they're playing fall ball, um, whether they're going to shut down throwing for a while after fall ball ends, like how many innings they pitch or they, they played during the summer and the spring. Um, most people right now are into like a power phase because um, we're trying to get them up to a peaking phase right before they shut down for throwing for two months. Um, generally what we do is we try to build – strength first uh, to build like a base of strength because power and explosiveness are ultimately about like how much strength you can produce like really quickly. So our first thing we want to do is learn to build strength. And then after we've built that base of strength and we learn to produce it really quickly with like a power phase and an explosiveness phase. Uh, but not everybody's on the same training schedule. So uh, like I said, some folks are in like a strength phase right now because they started late or they have like a slightly different timeline some guys are in a power phase and an explosiveness phase because we want to have them peaking right at the end of fall ball. Um, just so they can go out and they can show the coaches that they are good and they throw hard and they run fast, all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it just really depends on where they are and who they are and kind of what they need at that time. So I think a lot of people that reach out to us have kids that either are a little bit of a runt compared to others. They're waiting for their growth spurt. They're just the standard five, eight, one hundred. 29 pound, you know, eighth grader, whatever. 
So if we were to just like take a, a, a type, like say that, say you have a 14 year old kid who's 135 pounds. Uh, like what, what is his like general overview of the year look like starting from like September to sip to like next, next September. So if he was going to start now being 135 pounds, I guess the first thing we would have to do is, well, you always want to run an athlete through an assessment to figure out what their training history is, their injury history. Um, just figure out like who it is you're working with. And for somebody who's that small, I would say probably you want to start with uh, just basic strength exercises because they probably don't have a lot of experience with that. So learning to do exercises properly, like from an early age is very important because you don't want to start doing exercises wrong. And then as you get stronger, you add more weight to these exercises with bad movement patterns. Um, so learning how to do like a good squat, a good hip hinge, a good upper body push, a good upper body pull. That's all really important right off the bat. And then once you learn how to do those things, you can do them proficiently then you can start adding more weight. You can start playing around with different like periodization schemes. But in general right now, so I was starting today in September, we'd probably go through about maybe a four to six week strength phase. Then we switch over to power for maybe two to three weeks. Then we switch over to pure speed. So we're training basically at all ends of like the speed strength spectrum, but at different times of the year to try to get athletes to peak at the right time. So usually what I'll do is I'll figure out like, when does this athlete need to be at their best? Like, when do they have, like, a showcase? When do they have, like, the start of their competitive season? Because that's when I know they need to be peaking. So we need to be training for max explosiveness and speed at that time. And then I'll basically reverse engineer my programming to figure out how do we get them basically from point A to point B so that everything kind of times up properly. And you can't really do that, I think, unless you reverse engineer from the end point. So that's a good, it's kind of yeah, go ahead, Bobby. Well, then I was going to say that's good because a lot of a lot of kids are just like, you know, I want to get bigger or I want to get more explosive. They just pick whatever they want to do, and then that seems to be like the focus of the whole winter, getting up to whatever they're going to do. But uh, I wanted to touch base. So when I started lifting, you know, in high school, we went through phases of size, strength, power, and then performance. At least what, that's what my trainer broke it down into. Do you stick? Do you stick with three as far as strength, power? and speed are there more phases like if you were going to plan out the perfect off season for uh, a baseball athlete, baseball or softball athlete what are those phases can, you know can, how many phases are there can we i i caught myself doing these the other day i hate this so much can we all agree we can like either like i can get a knife we can do a blood oath but can we all agree to not call baseball players baseball athletes can we leave? Can we leave? Can we officially leave it at baseball players? Why do we have to call them athletes? It's a, it's implied that a baseball player is an athlete. There's never been a baseball player who's not an athlete except for David Wells. So, <laughs> like, I don't know why. It. I don't if we're going to be honest with ourselves. If we're going to be honest, yes. Um, <laughs> why are we calling them athletes? Just call them baseball players. It's, com- it's always been fine. It's completely fine now. Okay, all right, we can move on. Thank you. Because it so, sounds more professional. It sounds stupid. It sounds it's professional. A word. It sounds stupid. I, Why are we I reinventing like, literally like every word? It's like when somebody – here's the thing. When they're on the field, you can call them players and it's fine. But as soon as they step into a gym environment, like all of a sudden they're athletes. I think that's just because that's like the preferred nomenclature of trainers and strength coaches. Like you don't say like my players. You say like my athletes. I think that's where that comes from. But – I think in the right context, it does sound really silly. Like you wouldn't be watching a baseball game on a field and be like, Oh, like that guy's a really good first base athlete. No, no I get well, what you're saying. 
It's a, I mean, I think it just in general, it's friends of team sports. I mean, there's football players, basketball players, hockey players, baseball players, track athletes. Uh, oh, wait, oh, cross, oh, you know, like cross, track cross country. No, because they're not really playing track. They're like running track or they're shot putting. Like, either way, I just don't know why, I don't know why we've like bridged the gap and done that because it just like, it hurts me. And I called my, I said, I said it once the other day, despite being very anti. All right. So mm-hmm. back to whatever Bobby's question was. I'm sorry. I ruined everything. <laughs> so I think Bobby's uh, question my, was, are there, what, what are the phases in training? And like, are there yes. more than the three? So really, it kind of depends on what periodization scheme you're using. Um, right now, what we're doing with a lot of our athletes, if we have a lot of time with them, is we're doing triphasic training, uh, meaning that it's broken up into like three basic blocks. So it's block periodization. So you have like your strength phase, you have what's called a transmutation phase, which I just call a power phase just for the easiness of it. And then you have their peaking phase. Um, and it's all kind of the same as what you said that you used to do. It's probably the same, the same idea, just with like different, different names to it. Um, but that said, you could be doing like linear periodization where you're doing like the hypertrophy phase where you're just working on getting really big. Then you have the strength phase and the power. You could be doing block periodization where you have like speed, strength, explosiveness, power, you could be doing like a conjugate program where you're simultaneously working on strength and power at the same time. So there's a lot of different options when it comes to training. So it's, it's kind of a hard question to answer without knowing like exactly what program we're talking about, but like there, there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can get good results with athletes or players. If, um, if you just know what you're doing and you kind of know how to manipulate the variables, like you can get good, results from linear periodization or concurrent training like a, like a west side program or triphasic like is, is what we do most of the time with our athletes so can you briefly yeah i mean there's a lot of ways those. to skin a cat it, it just what's that can you briefly explain all those all those three i'm going to stop you every time there's a word that i think maybe like someone that's just like not in training maybe doesn't know so like periodization sure, sure. triphasic um west side can you just like briefly hit those sure so periodization is basically just um, it's how you alter training variables over time to provide different stimulus to the body. So if you're in, let's, let's say linear periodization, that's kind of the easiest one to explain. Linear periodization means that you start with focusing on building muscle size first. We call it a hypertrophy phase. So the idea is if you have more muscle cross-sectional area, you can theoretically produce more strength. You can produce more force. So they always start with building muscle size first. Then they will take that existing muscle size, they add strength to it with a, with a strength block of training. Uh, then after that, the next thing is, well, we've built size, we've built strength. Like what's next that we have to do for athletes? The next move is to work on applying that strength quickly, so building power. So they go from hypertrophy to strength to power, and each one of those blocks kind of builds off the last one. So we build muscle size to increase strength. We increase strength to increase power. We increase power to increase speed on the field. Um, that's all it really is. Um, and usually if you're using, um, moderate weights for like higher reps, say like eight to 12 reps, that's going to be good for building muscle size. If you're using heavier weights, um, so something you could do for maybe one to four reps, that's going to be good for building strength. And then for building the speed and power, you want to use the same basic rep scheme as you would for strength, but you want to drop the intensity of the load to say instead of it's something you could squat for three reps, like your three rep max. You would then take those three reps and do them at maybe 50% of your one rep max. So it's all about just kind of adjusting the variables to get to that end goal that we talked about before of like having guys peak at the right time. 
Okay. Um, and then for the triphasic thing, there's an idea that a strength coach from Iowa had. I think it was Iowa or Minnesota. Oh. Um, yeah, and I think it was also with, he was also with Cal. Well, no, his name's Cal Dietz. Yeah, Cal Dietz. I think he was Minnesota, but yeah. Yeah, it was Minnesota. So he had a, a really good idea, which is he broke down athletic performance into basically three parts of movement. There's the eccentric movement. So I'll, I'll just use the example of a squat to explain this. So the eccentric movement in a squat is like as you're like sitting down, we call that an eccentric contraction, say for, in your quads, because your quads are lengthening uh, while they're – uh, while, while they're under tension, you have an isometric phase. So if I get to the bottom of the squat and I stop, that's the isometric phase. That's where I need to be able to reverse. And then as you're coming out of the bottom, that's the concentric phase. So we have eccentric, isometric, concentric. So what he did is he figured out a way to isolate each one of those parts of a lift to increase athlete's explosiveness over time. And it's really smart. Basically what he does is he does like two weeks of just eccentric work going really heavy going down really slowly and then you do two weeks of isometric work where you get to like your bottom range you hold it for a second and then you explode it up out of it then you do two weeks of just like regular tempo squats for example then after that that's when you switch over to like the power stuff so you're not doing any like slow descents you're not doing any pauses you're just going down and up as fast as you can so you've built up the ability to have really good eccentric strength so you can control that downward portion you built up really good isometric strength so you can stop dead at that bottom portion and then you can reverse it really quickly. When you break down athleticism, a lot of times it just comes down to like how well does an athlete absorb force? Like how well can they stop it and then like reverse it? So like for pitching, running, uh, swinging, pretty much anything, jumping, anything you want to do, it's all about taking that force and kind of like reversing it. So it works really, really well. We've been doing it for the past uh, two years with our athletes that we get a good like three, four months with. And we've seen really, really good results. Um, we used to do mostly like concurrent training, like kind of like a West side type of program where you're trying to work on strength and speed at the same time. And I think that works really well, uh, especially if you only have guys for maybe a month or two, uh, you can do that kind of program and it's really effective. But if I have athletes for a longer period of time, I really like to use that triphasic program to give them a really good base of that eccentric isometric strength because then they just get really super explosive. Bobby. So I have a question uh, yeah. because I work with a lot of younger guys. And let's say I get a kid, you know, he's an eighth grader or freshman. The biggest deficiency I see is, aside from overall strength, is core strength. Like, they just don't have control of their body. They're not strong. So what would you do with kids that are, let's say, like, not under the age of preteens, 12 and under? You know, if you, if, they brought you, if you brought them into the gym, you know, what are some of the core exercises you would have them do? Not core necessarily, just overall, like, base exercises you'd have these kids doing just to increase overall, like, body awareness, some, give them some strength, like, get them ready to start, you know, maybe experimenting in the weight room when they hit their teenage years and not be totally deficient uh, strength-wise. Sure. So usually the first exercise that we teach athletes is going to be a goblet squat, which is the, probably the most basic squat you could do. So you want to take just the old dumbbell out in front of your chest. Um, you squat down, you stand up. So there's a couple of reasons why I like that for beginners. Number one is that if they fail on a goblet squat, all they have to do is just drop the dumbbell and they're fine. 
Like if you take a, a young athlete and you give them a back squat to do and they fail on a back squat, like they could, they could get hurt pretty seriously. So uh, it's safe. And it also requires you to use your anterior core to support your body a little bit more than a back squat would. So front squats, goblet squats are all going to be a little bit more anterior core um, demanding than a back squat would. And then things like, um, things like planks are really good for starting out athletes, especially if they don't have the body control and the core strength to really like control their body in space. So once they can do like a normal good plank for maybe about 30, 45 seconds, we'll then start adding different things to the plank. Like maybe we'll have them like, like lift up an arm or like lift up a leg. So we're adding new challenges to the stabilization. So a lot of folks, they get carried away with the planks. Like they'll start doing them for like five, 10 minutes at a time, which I don't think is, is much, I don't think there's much benefit to that. So I think the best way to kind of, I guess, progress those is just add different pieces to it. So add in some slight movement, add in some, some arms and legs moving. Um, I think we want to do with athletes really quickly is teach them how to do a good hip hinge. Uh, probably the easiest way to get hurt in a weight room is to throw your back out, either deadlifting or squatting or doing anything that involves like your hips, basically. So teaching athletes how to do a good hinge right off the bat by doing Romanian deadlifts or by doing hip thrusts is always going to be a good idea. Plus with hip hip thrusts, you get the added benefit of building up glute strength, which is going to build up that overall core strength and body control like you were talking about. Um, Generally, you want to have... Sorry, go ahead, Dan. So we got a question on YouTube that pertains. I was just like waiting just to throw in at the right time. Uh, and I know the answer to this, but what, uh, how, how hard is it to teach hip hinge to kids? Did, uh, is, it, is it kind of one of the clunkier exercises? It, it is. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough to teach because uh, it's not like a super, um, it's not a super intuitive move, movement for a lot of people. So the idea is you want to bend at the waist. You want to keep your knees relatively stiff, but you got to keep your back flat. And most people, when they go to bend over, if you were going to like go pick a, something up off the ground, most folks would round their back to do that because it's easier, especially if you have tight hamstrings, which a lot of people do. You're going to run out of room to bend at the waist pretty quickly because your hamstrings run out of room to stretch and you got to round your back. So it does, I think the hip is probably the hardest thing to teach like from a movement standpoint. Teaching a squat is not super difficult. Teaching a good push is not hard at all. Teaching a good pull, not hard. But what we usually do is we'll use, we have like a whole, I guess, kind of a sequence that we use with a stick. And you guys might've seen this where you basically, you take a wooden dowel and you have the athlete place it behind their back and they have to kind of hold it there and they have to maintain contact with their tailbone, their upper back and the back of their head. And then what we can do is they can just kind of work through different types of hinges. We start them like kneeling on the ground, just kind of bending forward. Then we'll pick them up on their feet and they'll do the same thing. And the idea is to kind of give them that feedback of like, Hey, if you bent forward, like, did you maintain it? Did you maintain all three contact points? And they can tell right away if they didn't, because the stick is like wobbling around. So that's like kind of my quick, easy way to teach the hinge is just use that stick as like a, I guess like feedback for them. Cause it, it is hard to do. And it, it does get frustrating sometimes, but the only thing you have to remember is that it's equally frustrating for the athlete too. So you kind of have to, just, just be encouraging. Eventually, they're going to get it. Like it doesn't. It's not an impossible movement to do. It just takes a little bit of practice. That's all. Yeah, we just found that. I guess that maybe like thirty percent of kids just like don't get it. Where they'll 
lock their knees and then round their back, or then they'll mm -hmm. just squat. It's one of the two. They can't find the middle ground where their knees are slightly bent, but mostly stiff, and then their back stays flat. So we would just give them a lot of hip thrusts and sliding leg curls and just stuff to like build their hamstrings up. And then mm -hmm. the, as they get some strength there, it just like starts to get better. And you just still try, just try to keep coaching it. So yeah, so, that's a, it's always been a challenge for sure. I, I do have one cue that, that seems to work like a charm every single time I use it. And it's really juvenile and it's kind of silly, but it works really well with kids. And what you have to do is you tell them, imagine like you're trying to shoot a fart straight out behind you, like as you do your hip hinge. So if they squat down, they're around their back, they, the fart goes into the ground. If they keep their hips up, it goes straight back. Mm. And it, it's worked literally every time I've used it. And it's so stupid. I feel like an idiot for using it, but it works completely 100% of the time. Keep it so, simple. If someone sharts, you're going to get sued. <laughs> well, I mean, we've all been a loss on a fart before. I think it's... Fair. It's a very litigious society, man. <laughs> I don't know if he gets sued, but whoever cleans up the gym isn't going to be too happy with it. Um, you should make sure you, you make sure you're clear that you don't want the athlete to actually fart. You have to just imagine them to <laughs> tell them to imagine. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the other difficult things that you want kids to learn as part of like their foundation? So when their training age is between like zero and one or two years, which training age, is just like how many years have you been training? So you could be, you could be 17 and have a training age of one, or you could be 13 and have a training age of two, or you could be 15 and have a training age of five, depending on how old you've been, how long you've been at it. But what would you do for kids? What's, what's your foundation that you hope kids can get to? Uh, we want them to be able to do good goblet squats with about 40 pounds of dumbbell weight. Want them to be able to do a good hip hinge with a bar, so 45 pounds. Um, I like them to be able to do good push-ups. Push-ups are another one that's kind of tough to teach sometimes. And I think part of the reason is, like, kids learn how to do push-ups at a young age, but they don't learn how to do them super well. So you're going to see a lot of, like, backs arching, like elbows, like, flaring out to the side. So that's another one that we have to spend a little bit more time teaching. Uh, usually what we'll do is we'll – and this is a trick I learned from you, Dan, I think, is we'll take them and put them on, like, a Smith machine – and just have the bar at like a certain height. So they're doing their push-ups instead of like straight on the ground, do the push-ups at like kind of an incline. So gravity has less of an effect on them. And that's kind of how we'll teach the push-ups. So we want them to be able to brace their core, control their body, squeeze their glutes, tuck the elbows, retract the shoulder blades. Like if you do a push-up correctly, there's actually a lot of components that go into it. If you do it wrong, it's, it's really easy because you're not bracing your core. You're not doing things properly. Um, yeah. But being able to do good push-ups on the floor is, is a really important thing for athletes, I think, especially for throwing athletes. Um, and then being able to do a good rowing motion. A lot of times what we'll see is, especially in the younger athletes, when they go to row, they don't have the ability to kind of like pull their shoulder blades back and retract. They get really like lat and pec dominant and they end up like kind of rolling their shoulders up and forward. So teaching them how to not do that properly. Yeah, exactly. So we're trying to teach them to kind of keep their shoulder blades back and retract the shoulder blades to use those trapezius muscles instead of using the lats and the pecs to just kind of round over. Um, so we'll do seated rows for that. We'll do dumbbell rows. We'll use body rows. Basically, it's like an inverted row where you have the athlete kind of hanging upside down and they just kind of row their body up. So usually what we'll do in the first couple of sessions is we'll program in the body rows, we'll program in the push-ups, the goblet squat, and the hip hinge. And we just keep working on those four uh, until they get really good at them. Then we'll start branching out into other things. Because if an athlete doesn't have the body control to do 10 good push-ups, 10 good body rows, 
like they're not going to have the body control to do a lot of the like more advanced stuff that we need them to do. Yeah. And the thing with push-ups is the, like the knee push-up, which obviously it shortens the lever. So it seems like a good way to reduce weight, but it's like humiliating to both boys and girls. Like girls don't want to be doing girl push-ups. You know, if they're in the weight room, they're like trying to get strong and they have goals and boys certainly don't want to be doing quote unquote, you know, the knee, the knee push-ups, which some people call girl push-ups. So just putting them on the Smith machine or where their hands are on a bench or a box, or they can do them in their house, you know, with their hands on their countertop. It's just like, it's a full push-up. It just is like less humiliating. So I think that's a good way to do it. Cause there's always like the kids want to feel like they're doing good things, right? Like they're, yeah, there's not that stigma of it being like a girl push-up. Yeah. For sure. Like you you no. don't see anybody get embarrassed by doing push-ups on a bench or on a Smith machine. No. If you tell them to get on their knees and do push-ups, like that's a – Yeah. Nobody wants to do that. And ultimately, like, you want people to be comfortable in your gym. You want them to enjoy being there. If you, and if they're feeling embarrassed because of what you're making them do, then they're not going to have a good time, and it, it's just not going to work for you. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's really interesting how – especially with especially with girls, like for us, with, like, female athletes – one of our big goals was just getting to do good push-ups on the floor. Cause that's much more rare than I think parents realize like not many girls can do good push-ups on the ground with good form without like the, you know, like the eyeball push-ups and then to be able to get a good chin up, which takes much, much longer. Oh, but yeah. those are really big milestones for, especially for female athletes and for a lot of boys too. So um, as far as, so let's talk about some controversial stuff. So I love how fads come and go and, some trainers and especially some kind of outsiders in the industry, you know, there's this big dark star company that you know, a couple of years ago, all their videos were like, look how much we're deadlifting. We're so tough. Look how much we're bench pressing. Like we're so tough. Name Pitcher, them. Pitchers can bench press. <laughs> and it was like the sloppiest deadlifts with super round backs guys like doing just with awful form. That's going to come back to haunt them at some point when they have a slip disc. And bench pressing is just like, is that really necessary? There's a million different ways to push. You could do dumbbell bench press. You could do incline bench press. You could do different. There's lots of different things where uh, it just seemed like undue stress. So where do you fall on uh, some of these fads that have you maybe seen come and go over the last five years in training? Well, because um... a lot of that stuff faded away that I was mentioning. I was like, this is dumb. I know this is dumb because I've lived it both as a player and a coach. It's going to go away. And sure enough, it just like, it just like quietly slipped out. Mm -hmm. like stopped, yeah. It's like, exactly. Are we talking, are we talking CrossFit? No. Mm. Oh. <laughs> that's what, that's the fad. That's the immediate fad. Not that I think it's like a fad because it's still around, but. No, everyone's that's... big favorite way to ball baseball company. Come on. Uh, so I think. When it comes to like lifting weights, like, yes, like deadlift is going to be really important. I don't think that's ever going to go away. Like that's not a fad. Um, the thing with bench pressing, I think maybe was like an overcorrection based on a lot of what people were hearing from like other really prominent baseball trainers and like physical therapists and doctors where everybody was saying like, don't do this. It's dangerous. And I think anytime that you get somebody with, a strong viewpoint that has a lot of followers, there's always going to be somebody who is going to take the devil's advocate position. And they're going to push the other way. Um, I don't think that doing barbell bench press is that beneficial for a baseball player. I think you can get a lot 
I think you get the exact same stimulus out of doing like a single arm dumbbell bench press or even just a regular dumbbell bench press. But you can get a little bit more range of motion. You get a little bit more like rotator cuff stabilization out of it potentially. If you do a single arm dumbbell bench press, you have like the added challenge of like anti-rotational core stability. So the bench pressing I think probably is going to die out at some point just because it, not because it's necessarily dangerous because maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. I haven't really seen any research to show either way. I've heard lots of um, anecdotal evidence. Yeah, it was stigmatized for, being dangerous. for a long, and for a a long lot of time. Just, it, it's been yeah. stigmatized. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I, I just, I just don't know if it benefits baseball players that much where like you need to include it. So I think you have to like avoid it at all costs. Maybe, maybe not. I think it depends on individual differences in the athlete. I think it depends on shoulder range of motion. I think it depends on rotator cuff stability and it's like anything else. Like I, I don't like to throw blanket statements on anything. I think most things in the training world can be applicable and they can be useful to the right athlete. They can also be really damaging and really harmful to the wrong athlete. So saying all pitchers should bench press uh, to me is silly. Saying no pitchers should ever bench press to me is also silly. But I think for me, I'm all, I always want to err on the side of caution. So to me, like doing a dumbbell bench press seems, you know, I've always felt more comfortable with my shoulders being here with my hands kind of like turned in versus being here. So I've heard a lot of stories of power lifters messing up their shoulders from benching does that mean it's going to happen to a baseball player? Not necessarily, but at a certain point you have to wonder like, is, is the benefit worth the inherent risk that we, that we think it there, that we think there is. Well, and it's also right. just goes back to having, it's like, look, we have how many different variations of a pushing exercise do we have? Like 20, 100? 30, like, like so many. <laughs> yeah. so it's like, yeah. why do we have to use this one? Then that's the big thing. It's like, they're all just different tools. And that was something that I learned early on in one of my internships when I was in college is like, cause I remember we, you know, I worked with this guy, Nick Tubinello, who's a very prominent uh, fitness coach. He was a longtime personal trainer. He still is a personal trainer. He's mostly an educator. So he speaks at tons and tons of conferences around the world. You know, you know, Nick. Um, and when I was interning for him, he had this old elderly couple, one of which uh, the wife, she had, I think two hip replacements and the husband had a frozen shoulder and at least one knee replacement. So I was watching them work out and I was like, Nick, I'm like, like, what is like, tell me about the older guy. So he was doing a landmine press, which is you have an angled barbell, like the barbell, you take a 45 pound, an Olympic full-size barbell, you put one, you know, edge of it or end of it in the corner and then it goes up and down. You can push it at an angle. So a normal landmine press looks like this, like you're punching upward kind of, and this guy, his arm was pretty much locked out. And he was just kind of like wiggling his body like this. And I was <laughs> like, Nick, um, I'm like, what's, what's up with him? Like, shouldn't he use more range of motion? He's like, he's a frozen shoulder. He's like, so look, like when you have limitations or you're an athlete, and you have things that you're maybe trying to avoid. He's like, exercise just looks different to different people. He's like, this is a 75 year old man who's here can like, like clockwork twice a week. He's got limitations. His wife has limitations. This is, this is what a press looks like to him. So he's moving his body. He's getting some blood flow through his shoulder. He's holding weight in his arm. That's going through his joints. He's like, this is the best he can do. And it, and it's good for him. It's better than not doing it. It's, and there's other you know things that they do with him. Like that was the only, not the only pushing exercise, but it was just an example of the fact that th there's just different tools for different people. 
and being flexible in what good training looks like is really important. So that was a, a lesson that always stuck with me. And that's why when people are like, oh, you got to do this, like, screw you. You're an idiot. No, you don't. Like, and when you see something that looks like, uh, might be a little bit too high on the risk reward scale, like doing these insane 600 pound round back deadlifts for baseball pitchers, like, do you really need to be doing that? Are you really getting an extra whatever pitching performance on the field from doing a absolute max effort grinding terrible form deadlift? No. Are you no, getting some benefit be doing no. good good? Are you getting some benefit learning how to deadlift properly? And then maybe getting to like 400 pounds, maybe 500 with good form. Sure. But then there's also diminishing returns. Like, do you, do you see, say you have a guy like me come in, I'm like 28 years old. I'm pretty like, I have a long training age. I'm like eight and I'm like a 450 pound deadlifter. Do you need me to get to 550 pounds to be a better pitcher? No, not at all. No, no not at all. There, and that was my point. point of, yeah. yeah. Like there's, diminishing there's, a returns. Point, there's a, yeah. Point of diminishing returns. So if I can take a guy, a baseball pitcher, like you said, and he deadlifts 450 pounds, like, is he really going to benefit from deadlifting 500? Like, probably not. Yeah. He, well, his time would probably be better spent taking that strength and learning to apply it really quickly, like we talked about before. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of comes down to identifying what are people's weak points. And I would argue that if you can deadlift 450 pounds, that's probably not a weak point for you. Mm-hmm. So it just, yeah. th- there's just no point to that. Well, and I think the problem nowadays is, sorry, Bobby, to cut you off, but like, no, you're four, I mean, when you've lifted for a while, like 450 pound deadlift is not that heavy, you know, and it's, it's relative to everyone else. So like if you're a division one athlete and you're a junior or senior, 450 pound deadlift is pretty ordinary compared to the regular population. Like I go to a, a local gym, very few people there could deadlift 450 pounds, even though this is a, a CrossFit gym that I go to and I, I don't do CrossFit. I just use it as an open gym, but even there, like not that many people could do 450, but in the athlete world, that's pretty commonplace. Then you're like, well, if I want to be great, I should deadlift 600. It's like, but, but no, because there's still just like, you just don't know what's going on either. Like how much force going through your elbows is bad for your elbows at some point, right? I mean, like powerlifters are pretty banged up people. They're not like the healthiest population, even though they're really strong. But anyway, um, sorry, mm-hmm. Bob, go ahead. So I was going to say how much, so as two, two trainers, you know, how much stack do you put into what an athlete, and I have an anecdote to go with this, what, an ath- what makes an athlete feel good versus like the risk reward of maybe the exercise. So my example is uh, I always worked out with a kid who his bench press needed to be, I forget the certain weight. He, like, he needed to be able to rep, you know, five times, 315. And we were both baseball players. Like my big exercise was always leg press. So like if, I, if my leg press wasn't X weight, whether it was beneficial to me or not performing on the field, like confidence wise, I felt like I wasn't strong. And for him, it was the bench press. So if somebody walks in like Dan and he's like, look, I always deadlift 500 pounds. And Andrew, you're like, well, you deadlift 450 now. Like maybe we don't need to focus on that, but how much account do you take into maybe like that's like Dan needs that extra 50 pounds on his deadlift to perform mentally as not not be insecure. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I mean, that's, it's a, I feel like that's a real thing. Like confidence is a real thing as far as strength wise. I mean, even in like currently now I'm not training as a professional athlete anymore, but I feel weak if I can, if I don't do exercises the same way that I, I could have done, even if I'm not necessarily overall weak, I still feel weak personally. So like how much stock do you take in like an athlete's psyche? Uh, even if that exercise maybe is bench press and you disagree with, 
uh, you know, the risk reward factor? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a tough one. Cause there's definitely things that athletes sometimes want to do um, <clears throat> that I don't know is going to be beneficial for them. But like you said, like they kind of need that psychological, I guess, bump of like being able to do whatever it is like they think they need. So it kind of comes down to, I think kind of balancing what you want to do as a trainer and what the athlete wants to do or what the client wants to do. Cause ultimately if a client comes to you and you tell them, I know you like to do this and that, and I'm going to take away this and that. So you can't do anything you like to do. And you're going to do what I want all the time. If they're not, they're probably not going to listen to you and they're not going to like it. So it kind of comes down to, you kind of have to play like a give and take game. Like I have one athlete that I train and he's really into using like a bunch of different gadgets. So he has a bunch of different like pitching aids, um, like recovery tools, things like that. And some of it, like I don't necessarily think is going to help him. So I, and, I, and I'll tell him that I'll say, look, I don't think this is going to help with this problem you're trying to fix. But if you want to use it, like go ahead, like if, if it makes you feel good. And as long as it's not taking time away from something else that we need to do that is going to help you get better, in my opinion. Like I'm, I'm fine with it. Like if you want to use uh, some kind of fancy recovery gun, like I don't think it's going to help you recover that much, but if, if, if you feel good and it's going to help you perform in the weight room and perform in the field, like by all means have at it. So I think it, it comes down to like being upfront with people and being honest about like what you think is going to be good for them versus what you think is not going to be helpful, but also just, just let them kind of do their thing a little bit. As long as it's not like having a detrimental effect. Like if somebody came in and they insisted that they had to squat 500 pounds, but they couldn't squat with like good form, I would say, well, I understand, I understand what you want to do and I know it's going to make you feel good. But if you keep squatting with this bad form and keep going up in weight, you're going to get hurt. Uh, so why don't we, like we'll make a compromise. Like we'll work on your squat, but you got to work with me. I'll, I'm going to reduce your weight. We're going to fix your form. And then we'll kind of go from there. So I think sometimes you just have to compromise with athletes and just let them do what they think they need to do so they feel good and they don't get mad at you for taking away what they like while also explaining what you want to do and why it's good for them. And I think if you can make a strong case for what you want to do and you know what you're talking about and you have evidence to back you up and the athlete trusts you, then, then they'll listen to you. Yeah, and I'll kind of mirror that uh, answering the question myself is that I, I can't remember who told me it over the years, but someone's like, look, just like like cheat meals, you know, if you're doing the right things most of the time and your guy like wants to do some bicep curls at the end of his workout, like on Fridays, like as a coach, it's like, let him do it. Like if that makes him happy and he's like, it's like, you know, you, your kid eats his Brussels sprouts so he gets to have dessert. You know, it's like our three sets of bicep curls or he does a couple bench presses at the end of the week because he likes doing it with his buddies and he's had a good week of training. Like, is that going to change like his body and like, no. Right. And so it's kind of the same thing. I can, again, I can't remember who told me that over the years, but I always thought, yeah, that makes sense. Like, so yeah, if they want to have like little garbage time and just like mm -hmm. do things like, and that makes them excited to be there. That's all right. You know, and it, yeah. even for me today, like I have to fight to get out of my own mindset. Like I've always trained like an athlete and now I'm not an athlete and I'm just trying to not hate training. So I like do a little bit of bicep curls at the end. I'll do a little bit of like forearm curls, just like a little bit of like glamour work. Cause I never did as a player. And it's like, I can do this. Like, why not? It's like easy too. like bicep curls for people who don't know the reason everyone's doing bicep curls at the gym is because they're easy <laughs> and they're visible. <laughs> it's so easy to do bicep yep. curls. It's like it's so easy. Like your heart rate doesn't go up. It's just like, 
man. And you take that for granted, how much of that peripheral stuff is just like shoulder raises. I mean, they burn and stuff, but like, they're just like, they don't have the same effect on your body. Yeah. So, and they're yeah, time well, consuming and extremely boring. Yeah. Well, the biceps, like the forearms, biceps, I mean, you feel that the most after you do a set of three, like you, and you look in the mirror, like mm-hmm. you feel like you get the pump and the quote unquote pump. Like you feel like you're flexing even when you're not like the, you, you, it's hard to get that in your legs. Like it's, it's hard to get that feeling in your back. It's hard. It's harder to get it in your chest. And it, like the bicep probably is the easiest in my amateur opinion to just feel that pump. So Plus, like Dan, you said, like it's the first thing someone notices when you walk up is arms. Like they don't notice. Like man, this guy's got this guy's got great quads. And the second the second thing you notice is that they don't have any lower body, and then you're like, oh, oh yeah, this guy's this guy is a loser. <laughs> He's never. I have, squatted. but I have plenty of lower half, so I can do my biceps all I want and not feel and not look at a at a place. So <laughs> anyway, um, you know, right, so I've got these days. What? I wonder how much you can squat these days. Uh, I'm still not. Well, I, I think I told you the other day I did 285 front squat for three years, 275. I think I did 285 or something for like three. And then I did 275 back squat for five or six. And that was after, I mean, I'm on like week 10 of not having lifted for three years, essentially. But I still just it's hate It's pretty it. amazingly how quick your strength comes back, isn't it? Well, I put on 10 pounds too, just recently. Like I, my, my sister, I saw her a couple of times recently and uh, she was like, you look a lot more muscular than you were. And this is just like me going from like completely deflated to like back to like almost high school level to just like bumping up. And then there's like another level where another five or 10 pounds, I'll be back to like how I looked when I was playing, I guess. But my, I have just like, everyone's different, but I like put on weight super fast. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Same. But the old man strength, the old man strength is very real. And also just like the lessons you learn, like, like people take for granted that the fact that part of the reason that I could just like throw 275, which again, is not a heavy weight. Like for me thinking like, oh, 275, like it's not a good weight. It's a good weight for the general population, but like, not for me, 275 was like a 25 rep back in the day. Um, But you take for granted how much the reason a person could just like not have trained for a long time and just like throw more than their body weight on their back for a bunch is because your back has like some residual like thickness and size to it. You learn how to brace your core very well. Like you have good form. You learn how to use your diaphragm. Like you, you know, you just like know all these technique things that someone doesn't have that technique. They, they are like 70 pounds less on the bar because they just like their body's like, no, let's not, let's not do this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. so you, you you take for granted how much the bracing and and all that stuff in squatting is important but so i've got i've got another question because i'm the amateur lifting guy here so do you see a difference in kids that play multiple sports in the at the younger level and their strength or is there any correlation with that because my question stems from we've got a few hockey players in my program and they seem to be significantly stronger at their relative age than the rest of the kids. And this gets up to basically before kids start lifting. So basically like that preteen, you know, that 12 and under, like the kids that are hockey players are significantly stronger. Do you find that as well? Like the kids that do some of the, like, like wrestle or, gymnastics or anything do you notice the strength difference and maybe just the 
basketball, baseball players that come in? Wrestling and gymnastics, absolutely. Um, we just started training a 12U softball team. And one of the girls on the team, uh, she has been wrestling for several years now. And her strength levels compared to the rest of the team and her movement patterns are just way, way better, like way better core control. She can do good push-ups on the ground. She can do front squats, which is better than, I don't know, probably 90% of 11-year-old girls. Yeah, it's not um, So I think it kind of depends on, like, what the sport is. Because if kids are playing, say, like, soccer, basketball, baseball, I don't think you get the same kind of training stimulus that you would get from a sport like uh, gymnastics or from wrestling where body control is like a really important part of both of those sports. And like, you have to be really strong to do them. Like you can play soccer without being real strong. You can play basketball without being real strong. Um, ultimately I think there's not much of a difference between the multi-sport athletes and like the single, the single sport athletes strength wise, unless they're doing a sport like wrestling or like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something like that. But that, that's, that kind of stuff really seems to make a big difference for sure. Yeah. Hockey's always the one that sticks out to me. And I, you know, and being someone who's been on the ice before, I mean, controlling yourself on skates, like the core strength you have to have having a stick in your hands, like it's definitely a physical sport more so yeah. than, you know, swinging a bat or shooting free throws or anything like that. Yeah, so I, I think, it's just, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. Just, just the glute and the quad strength you build from skating around like that is probably tremendous, especially like hip yeah. abductors. That's an area of weakness we've seen a lot of young athletes. But if you're skating around, like pushing out with your feet on every step, like you've got to have incredibly strong glutes and quads. Um, yeah, you're, like, and you're, you're under tension like, the whole time. Like you're yeah. constantly – it's almost like you're like in a squat like kind of the whole time. Exactly, yeah. And if you look at like Olympic speed skaters, like those people's legs are massive, just ginormous. So, yeah, I would, I would say speed – or skating, hockey would be a sport you could definitely benefit from if you're looking to build – like lower body strength and core stability. Absolutely. Yeah. You hear, know, you heard it, you heard it here first. Go play hockey. Do you Go play hockey. <laughs> I mean, like my question just stems from the, I hate hearing like, Oh, we want to keep, you know, we want to keep him multiple sports. He's a multi-sport athlete. It's like, that's not what you think it is. Like kids that are super athletes that excel at multiple sports are just better genetically than your son. Probably. Like if your son wants to be the best baseball player, like he, it's helping, it, he's not going to go out and play four sports and all of a sudden be better at baseball because of it. Like, especially if he's not genetically like a better athlete than all these other kids, like he should focus, he should try and maximize in one sport as opposed to just spreading himself thin. But you do, but I, at least I see it and I don't train kids in the, in the gym essentially, but I see it in their performance on the field base on the baseball field if they've got a background in a sport where they have to use their body and it's physically demanding. I mean, gymnastics sticks out to me because they had a high school kid who has never, like he's never been in the weight room and I shook his hand. And I mean, you could just tell the strength he's got in his forearms from moving his body around. I mean, it's been in the gym essentially working out. His sport is a workout and a two hour long workout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think with the whole like, uh, like playing multiple sports, like special specialization thing. I think like getting at get, or getting kids into a lot of sports when they're younger, especially between like the ages of say like seven to like 12, 13, it, it definitely helps them learn different movement patterns. It helps them not always be doing the same thing, especially with baseball where you really don't want kids throwing year round year after year. 
it's going to have a different stimulus for your body. I think once you get to a certain age, I think once you reach like skeletal maturity, I think any of the like neurological improvements you're going to have from playing multiple sports year round, you're probably not going to get that once you're like late into your high school career. So for young athletes, I think playing multiple sports is really important. And plus it's just fun. It gives them a chance to like play different things and find out what they like to do. But once you get to high school, I think some people get so caught up in like, Oh, like we need to be like multiple sport athletes, like college coaches, they all want multiple sport athletes. But I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Um, and I talk about this a lot. Like I said, I don't like to make blanket statements. So anytime somebody says everyone should do this or everyone should do that, like a little like kind of red flag pops up for me. But like you said, like there's definitely athletes that like maybe if you're a sophomore or a junior in high school and like you know that you want to play baseball at the next level, but your baseball skills aren't where they need to be to get you to that next level. Like maybe it's time to have a hard conversation with your parents and decide, hey, I'm not going to play basketball this winter because I want to play college baseball. So I'm going to focus on getting better for baseball for this spring. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the problem is if parents push the kids into doing one sport all the time, that's a huge problem. I think parents forcing their kids to play multiple sports all the time can also be a problem. And I think it just kind of comes down to like, what is the end goal? Like, are you doing this because you want your kid to like, you want to live vicariously through your kid or you think it's really what's going to be best for them in the long term. So and that's yeah. a conversation I have with parents sometimes, and it's not always comfortable. Um, but, but I think it is important to kind of have that in mind as you're advising somebody on whether to play multiple sports or focus on one, the age and the end goal and kind of where they're at currently. Yeah. It's, it's a shame that the stories of people like Aaron judge are what fuel multiple sport. Like it's almost like propaganda. It's like, Oh, Aaron judge played three sports. Great. It's because he was yeah, like a grown man. So. Yeah. He was a grown yeah. man when he was 15. And like, that's where developmental age comes into it. Like you talk about someone like Aaron judge, who was probably a monster throughout his just life. Right. He, when he was a 12 year old, he was probably the size of 15 year old. When he was 15, he was probably the size of an 18 year old. When he was 17, he was probably the size of a 22 year old, you know? And then he, he, and obviously today he's like the size of like Thor, some giant person. So, mm-hmm. you know, giant. like, he, yeah, he can play three sports and maybe be less skilled at all of them because he's just physically dominant compared to everyone else. And he can, you know, he can pick up baseball and just seasonally and just be great at it. Like that's, yeah. And then someone like Bryce Harper probably could have played three sports too. Like, mm-hmm. and, and just like been totally fine. But I only played one sport because, well, I mean, I was like, I'm athletic compared to other people, but I'm not compared athletic compared to either of you or like other pro athletes, but I just played one sport because that was all I liked. I, I, I had no desire to really other, play other sports, which was also totally fine. Maybe exposes you to more injury, but like I played soccer until I was 14, maybe. I played tennis until I was 14 or 15. And then in high school, I was like, I'm done with all that. I'm not playing tennis during the spring. I'm playing baseball. Get out of here. Smell you. Mm-hmm. Te- tennis, tennis nerds. Get out of here. <laughs> it kind of has to line up with your goals too, right? Like if yeah. you got kids that are like, oh, I want to play college baseball. Okay, well – you're you're not there yet and you're not physically dominant at baseball so you need to start focusing yeah Yeah, you have to go for broke like you're not just Mm -hmm. just playing basketball and football in the two other seasons isn't going to make any better at baseball at this point like these kids that are also as good as you are only playing baseball well i mean there's multi-sport is great if you're just a kid that wants to play sports in high school and wants to go to college for academics if you're a kid has goals i mean you're 
your goals. We talked about this in a previous show, Dan, or I was talking to a kid that I have in my program, like your goals and what you're doing to meet those goals are not lining up. Like they need to line up if you're going to make it to the next level or whatever level. Yeah. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that real quick before I, we transition to uh, some research stuff. So, uh, say a lot of kids need to put on weight. Like they're just, they need to get to 170 pounds probably before like recruiting is like a serious thing for them. So, uh, what are some of the off season sports that are very counter to that? Uh, I mean, these are somewhat obvious, but talk through it. And then what are some of the things that kids need to do to really be serious about putting on weight? Uh, biggest, the, the, the sport that has probably the most negative effect on putting on weight is going to be cross country. Um, any sport where you're continuously moving around at a slow speed is not going to be good for muscle building. And it's not going to be good for building speed and explosiveness. Um, yeah, I've trained a fair amount of kids who like they play baseball as their main sport. Uh, but then in the off season, they're doing cross country or they're doing long distance swimming. And I just have to kind of, what's that? about basketball um it's a lot of running a lot of, basketball is a lot of running but it's it's not nearly as much as you might think a lot of basketball is actually just kind of like standing around that's the same with soccer like i think mike boyle posted something about how like when you're playing soccer you're sprinting for like not very much time you're jogging for actually a little bit of time most of the time you're just kind of standing around waiting for a player to pass you the ball so i don't think basketball is necessarily a sport you have to avoid if you're trying to get big or get get, get explosive. Um, but things where you're, you're moving at a low intensity and you're moving slowly for a long time, cross country and swimming, I think are probably going to be the two ones that are going to be least beneficial and the most detrimental. But yeah, I, I have a couple of kids that come in and they tell me they run cross, they run cross country to like get in shape for baseball. And they're always pitchers because they've always heard that running long distance is good for pitching, which I I don't think I agree with that, especially if you're running like multiple miles every single day. I don't think that's a good idea. So that's the situation where I'll have to sit down with the parents and the kid and explain, look, like if you want to get bigger, you want to get stronger, you want to throw harder, like you may want to think about not doing cross country anymore. And if they love it, like we talked about earlier, Bobby, like it's something they love. I'm certainly not going to discourage them from doing it or tell them they can't do it. But my job is to like kind of lay out the risks and the rewards of, yeah. Either outcome, you keep doing it. This is what's going to happen. You stop. This is what we can do. Um, but yeah, I'm putting gonna, a weight I'm going to push back against basketball. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still calories in, calories out. And basketball mm-hmm. practices are pretty grueling. I mean, you got a kid that wants to put on weight. I mean, would you advise him that he should run suicides for 45 minutes? I don't know that I would. Week? And that's yeah, what's I've happening heard. in basketball practice a lot. I mean, I, I struggled with that in the Midwest because Beckett – where we were kids could make three sports like schools weren't good enough so they could play basketball even though they're like five seven and they just like couldn't put on weight that way like they were just like basketball practices five six days a week were pretty tough lots and lots of baseline to baseline um and i don't know we we had a tough time helping kids put on weight that way but basketball is always a lot of conditioning in itself but it's also i agree that the sport itself you can just be Stand there, rain, also and, the, rain and jumpers, but the um, like what I, what the next question Dan asked you is like the blueprint to putting on weight. Like their blueprint for putting on weight, I'm sure these kids are waking up, going to school, not eating, and you know eating at lunchtime. School ends, and you go right to basketball practice, and you eat at six o'clock. Like that's not really a blueprint to put on weight 
mm-hmm. in general, where you've only had one meal from seven in the morning to six o'clock at night. When then these kids are like, well, I'm eating a lot in my one meal. Okay. Well, that's not like, well, I guess to the question is, you know, what's the blueprint to put on weight? If a kid needs to put on 20 pounds from September 15th to March 1st, the start of his normal baseball, high school baseball season, what's the blueprint to put on 20 to 25 pounds uh, in an off season? So the blueprint is mainly consistency. Um, one of the first things that we do with athletes when they come to train is uh, I have like a, um, I have a spreadsheet that I put together on my computer and I can enter in their, their body weight, their age, their activity levels, all kinds of stuff. And it gives me a rough estimate of how many calories they burn per day uh, called their total energy expenditure or their um, basal metabolic rate. Uh, and then from there, we can figure out, okay, if you want to gain X amount of weight between now and this time period, you have to gain X amount of pounds per week. So we know that if you want to gain one pound a week, the rule of thumb is you want to have a caloric surplus of 3,500 calories per week. So that's basically 500 calories a day of eating more calories, 500 more calories than you expend. Um, so for a lot of the kids, it just kind of comes down to having good habits and eating breakfast consistently, eating lunch consistently, eating dinner consistently. And then what we'll do is we'll have them use an app where they can kind of track their food intake and it'll record the calories, protein, carbohydrates, fat, every, basically everything. And I can kind of look at that and I can see, okay, well, you're not getting the correct amount of calories. You're not getting enough protein, whatever it is. And I can make suggestions on how to, like what they can add to their diet. So when you're a trainer or a strength coach, you can't really, you can't write prescribed diets for people. Like that's only something that nutritionists and dietitians can do. That's not really in our scope of practice, but what we can do is we can estimate like how many calories people should eat per day and give them suggestions on how to get there. One of my most common things that I tell kids, if you're, if you're struggling to gain weight is just carry around a big bag of trail mix with you. Cause like a little handful of trail mix is about 250 calories. So even if you're not having a great day eating, like maybe you missed breakfast, have like five, 10 handfuls of trail mix as you're walking around between your, between lockers, uh, like during school. And I just made those calories up. So, it just kind of comes down to being, being consistent and actually like following through what you want to do. And like, it's an argument that I have with kids, not frequently, but enough that it's not infrequent where they just don't want to wake up early and eat breakfast. Then that's, you, you just got to do it. Like that, that's all there is to it. Like if you want to get to that next level, you have to do it. And some kids will, and some kids won't. But at the end of the day, all you can really do is you can give them, like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink basically is what I'm saying. Right. You can yeah. give them the tools to help themselves, but ultimately it's going to come down to whether or not the athlete actually follows through on the advice that you give them. So it's kind of out of your hands in a, in a certain sense. I think the misconception too, of like how many calories you're actually taking in like actual calories versus perceived calories. Cause the kids are, you know, kids are always like, well, I ate, you know, I had two chicken breasts at dinner and I had, the vegetables. It's like, that's not like when I say eat to a kid, I'm like, you need to eat a lot. I'm like, you need to eat until you're full and then eat a little bit more. Like and you need to almost sad. feel, <laughs> yeah, you, you need to feel like it needs to be uncomfortable yeah. and you need to consist. Like if you're hungry, Very you've true. probably waited too long to eat. Mm-hmm. Like you almost need to like you use trail mix as an example. What I always tell kids, I'm like, look, take a whole loaf of bread, pull it out, 
make a bunch of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and then put it back in the bag mm-hmm. and try and you throughout the day, try and finish it. I mean, I know it's a lot and it's over it. The goal is so far past, like probably what they should be doing, but you need to try and like, you know, finish two of those bags a week or just add calories to your diet. Cause you're probably not getting enough. And the amount of time that you go in between meals is a lot more than you think. Like you're not eating every other hour. You're eating like yeah. every five hours and kids do a lot. I mean, they don't realize how much they're burning in school at practice. I mean, they're moving around constantly. They have a high metabolism in general because they're younger. I mean, I'm not a nutritionist by any stretch, but I know that they're moving around a lot and they're burning a lot of calories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah well, I, I just, think, go ahead. I, I think one of the most annoying things is that, like the daily recommended calorie intake for a person is 2000 calories. So when I ask athletes, like, like, how's your, like, how's your nutrition? Like, are you eating a lot? And like, Oh yeah. Like I eat like 2,500 calories a day. And that's like not anywhere near what you need. Like if you're a, if you're an athlete practicing five times a week, you're probably going to need 4,000 calories depending on your body weight. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like they, where did that 2000 come from for just somebody who's sedentary and does nothing? Well, I love beautifully round numbers. Like 100 miles per hour <laughs> is like the cutoff for throwing a mm-hmm. baseball. Why? You know, and 100 pitches, pitch count. Why? Anytime there's a beautifully round number, it's, you know it's just arbitrary. Yeah, you know, maybe different. there was science that said it was like 97 or 1900 calories. Like, let's just make it round. Like, okay, but mm-hmm. there's rarely, it just like, it smells fishy. But yeah, I had a, the guy, this guy, John Berardi, who owns the company Precision Nutrition, who's a really great um, uh, nutritionist uh, in like the sports nutrition area. But anyway, he, one of his stories, when he was in college, he was like a 125 pound freshman. He's like, I'm tired of being this little scrawny, you know, piece of crap. So he, he said his, and he was a bodybuilder, like on stage, like 170 pounds a couple years later. And he had an article, I I don't think it's still on the web anymore, but I remember reading it when I was in college. And he said, what I did was when I was in college, I took every morning six, a bag of six bagels, cut them in half, put peanut butter on, you know, between each one of them, which a bagel is like 250 calories, typically something like that. So that's 1500 food. Yeah. 1500 calories plus the peanut butter. It's like a 2000 calorie bag right there. And he took a jug of water, the gallon jug with like six scoops of protein in it. And he said, my motto was that if I wasn't chewing, I wasn't growing. So he was just in class, just like sad, <laughs> eating oh. peanut butter bagels and just like sipping protein. <laughs> and he gained like 80 pounds over like a two-year period and then cut down to whatever he went on stage at. But I mean, lifting really heavy and really, really hard while doing that is going to get results. Doing that obviously without all that is going to make you just very obese. But um but it does, it, I mean, people don't realize that, and this is what I've told kids before as well, is like, say the difference between your signing bonus is 100,000 or a million if you put on 20 pounds. Could you do it? And they're like, yep. I'm like, yeah, well, you don't have that mindset today because you're soft. So either you want to put on weight, either, either, you, either you want to put on weight or you don't. Either it's like part of your job or it's not. So They probably can't yeah. do it. They, pro- they, they don't have... Mental, mentally, maybe. Mentally, they don't know how to put on that weight, like. I remember trying to gain weight in high school and it was, I mean, like weighing myself every single day, like literally every day, morning and night. And if I lost just a little bit, it was, it was like, Oh my God, I just wasted a day. And if I gained a little bit, it's like, okay, this was a great day of whatever. And that's a bad thing to do mentally because I mean, you go to the bathroom, you piss out a pound and a half 
every time you go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? So, so it's I, like, I never you, went you fluctuate, to the bathroom. You fluctuate a lot. Yeah. Classic you. <laughs> or just go in your pants and then it stays on your body because it's in your pants. That's you know? right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. Body yourself, weight then. Yeah. You get credit for all of it. A hoodie. Yeah. Shoes so, on. So let's transition to uh, research a little bit because you and I have had our our ire at some of the stuff that gets posted on the web. A lot of there's just lots and lots of bad research because today everyone wants to be a researcher. Like you're pitching guys, like, oh, here's my research. I like used a moda sleeve and I did this and it's research, right? Um, whereas real research is hard to do, requires peer review, requires a lot of uh, knowledge. So you and I were complaining about a like kind of study released by Tom House and one of his buddies at the NPA. And it was honestly just junk. Um, you want to take us through it a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, I think n- number one, doing, doing research is not the same as gathering data. Correct. Um, so I think when people say like, I've been doing research, like not, not really, like you, you've been gathering data, but that's not what, what research really is. Um, so basically this is kind of a long walk, but I'm going to take you back through this. So I was seeing online a lot recently that like when you pitch, you should have your back foot in contact with the ground at ball release. Cause what they're saying is you want to have connection with the ground with your back foot for, for what reason? I'm not sure. Maybe it's like a stability thing, but I started wondering like, like, why is that? Like, why did people want that back foot on the ground? So I like just went back and I read some like research studies about like, um, like ground reaction force on the back foot and the front foot and like how much pressure is on the ground on the, bra- on the back foot. Watched a lot of videos of d- different pitchers pitching. And what I noticed was that a lot of baseball pitchers don't have their foot on the ground. MLB pitchers don't have their foot on the ground at ball release and they're successful. It's like Justin Verlander, uh, Nate Eovaldi, uh, Chris Sale. They don't have their foot on the ground at ball release. Um, and the pitchers that did, like their foot was like up on the toe and just like kind of dragging along the ground very lightly. So my point is like how connected to the ground are you if you have enough, if you have so little weight on that back foot that it can just drag lightly, just barely across the surface in the mound. Yeah. My argument is not, I would say not very. Um, so to me, the argument that the back foot has to stay down at, at the point of ball release doesn't hold water from like a, from just a common sense standpoint and a standpoint of me looking at actual pitchers and seeing like how they throw. Um, so I was doing all this research and I was like learning about that. And then literally like two days later, um, a, there was a post on the internet or on Twitter that I responded to. And it was a video of a boxer throwing a punch. And so he throws the punch, he lands the punch, his back foot is on the ground. Um, and the point that the poster was making, he was saying like, if, if you're going to punch somebody as hard as you can, like you keep your back foot on the ground, so why should throwing a pitch be any different? Well, I, I, one, I don't agree with that because if I'm going to punch somebody as hard as I can and I know that there's no risk of them coming back at me, I'm going full onto that front foot. Like, have you ever used one of those, um, like, punching bag, like, strength testers at, like, an arcade? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, how do people hit that thing? They don't stand there and, like, hit off their back foot. They get a running start and they just nail that thing, like, loaded onto the front leg. So... Not only that, but punching is not the same as pitching. They're different movements. Pitching right. has like a more of a downward movement to it. Punching is more just straight around or like you're punching up a lot of times too. So to me, that, that, that argument is, is that doesn't make sense. So I responded to that post with my own post where I showed that, look, like MLB pitchers, they don't all keep their foot on the ground. So it's not necessary to keep your foot on the ground. 
And I expected to get some pushback from that. What I didn't expect was like a huge Twitter war to start. But basically, um, one guy responded to me and he said he had some research that he did between uh, drag line and, and pitching injuries. So I don't know what a drag line is. I'm assuming it's the line that your, that your foot makes. Yeah, the drag. Like once yeah. you leave the rubber, the line down the mound. Yeah. So the, the, the Word document that he sent me, um, it didn't describe what a, what a drag line is. It didn't describe what an acceptable drag line is. And that was the thing. They were like, look, this amount of pitchers have what's called an acceptable drag line. Appropriate. And these folks don't have it. Yeah. So one, that's like by its language. And it's not even explaining like what is appropriate versus not appropriate. So that to me was kind of a red flag. And actually got like a message from a guy who works for an MLB team and they're like analytics department. Uh, and we, we were talking about it a little bit and, and he agreed with me too. Um, but basically they, they kind of went back and they saw like, they, they took like all the pitchers that were on the disabled list in 2019 or 2018, whatever it was. And they're like, all right, uh, 30% of, of all pitchers have an acceptable drag line, which means intuitively that means 70% don't, right? So basically 2.3 times as many pitchers have an unacceptable drag line as an acceptable drag line, 2.3 times, right? So they went back and they showed these percentages of people that were injured in each group. And they're like, oh, look, um, 8% of pitchers uh, had an acceptable drag line and 8% of them got hurt. And like uh, 24% of these guys with the uh, unacceptable drag line got hurt. And that sounds like, like a huge increase until you think like, oh, wait a minute, like, like eight times 2.3, that's, that's 19%. So you're dealing with different sample sizes, which th that you don't do that in research. And when you, can, when you compare two different sample sizes, like say you compare a group of 300 people to a group of 100 people, if your injury rate is 100%, that means that, or your injury rate is 1%, that means one guy got hurt in the 100, 100 size group three guys got hurt in 300 group. So it's possible you could mislead people into thinking that there's a three times bigger risk of being injured when you're just kind of playing around with the percentages. And it's easy right. to kind of mislead people with data like that, especially when you don't give like the raw numbers, you're just playing with percentages. So I didn't, I, I, I don't like that. I, I don't like when people, it seems like they have an agenda and it seems like they're trying to lie with statistics to try to like fit, to fit what they want the numbers to say. So that's what I got upset about. Yeah. And there's a lot of it out there. And, and the unfortunate thing, and this has been going for like a, a lot of years now is that people say research and they don't release exactly what they did. Most people aren't qualified to like comb through it and say, Oh, this is why this isn't maybe valid at all. Or here's some problems with your methodology. And so then people are just like, Oh, this guy did research and he found this and that's all they have. Like, it's just like a story, you know? And it's like they don't reading really the headline deep. of a news story exactly, instead exactly. of actually reading what the news is or whatever the story is. And, mm -hmm. Okay, so you two have you yeah. two have a lot of experience with uh, research and, and data, collecting data, like on the on that side. I well, don't. I say, and, well, I won't say that. I have so I I have a double major in college. I was philosophy and psychology, so I know enough in in both disciplines to know when people are not exercising sound logic or deductive reasoning or good experimental design in general. I'm not a researcher and I don't, I don't do research. I don't purport to do that. And that's my biggest problem. It's like, 
these other people, there's a lot of other pitching people or hitting people who are like, you're not qualified to do research either, but you're trying to, and you're doing it badly and you're misleading people. And that's the problem, you know? And so like with this one, like the first thing when Andrew sent me this study, it's like, they, they literally called it an appropriate drag line versus it's like, you're already presupposing that it's, and you're trying to mislead people that it's correct. It's like saying, we're going to test broccoli versus chocolate and see which one's the healthy food. And you're like, so we're going to put, or we're going to test vegetables versus candy. So we're going to put the vegetables in a group called healthy food and the candy in a group <laughs> called unhealthy food. So mm-hmm. we, what we, what we found was the, the unhealthy foods, well, it's like, you've already, you're already telling us what you think of the conclusion is. Right. Based on your, and that's what they did. They called it an appropriate drag line, which like I have a lot of respect for Tom house. He's done tremendous things for the industry and like little errors like that are like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you know, better than that. Like you, you clearly yep. know better to then use that language. Like you've been around a long time. And again, well, isn't seems like a great he, guy. Father of pitching Tom house. Mm-hmm. Like the, isn't he the, the poster child for changing his philosophy, like every two years on what is correct in pitching and what's not. I mean, mm-hmm. look, a- anyone who's been in an industry for 30 years is going to change a lot. So I, again, I think the vast majority of what we do today, we owe to Tom House, to the ASMI, to a lot of these people who are ahead of their time and pioneers of all this. But, you're, but everyone is still held this, the same standards today as they were before, where it's like, look, this is not, this is not good. This is like misleading. And this is this was done in a poor way. And that was my issue. Um, yeah. A lot of the stuff that he's my- done is, is great. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I have a book by Tom house on pitching that yeah, like, that sure. was very formative for me in my earlier years, like learning how to like how to throw baseballs. Like he's a really, really sharp guy. Um, but my, my, my other thing with this is like, my point was that the foot doesn't have to be down at ball release. And they sent me a study about like drag lines and it, that's not the same thing. So, but yeah. at any rate, cause your drag line is going to change depending on the way your hips move. So some mm-hmm. people's drag lines quickly sweeps out, some kind of makes like an S and, you know, there's definitely like a, you know, your hips are, you're going to stride out, then your hips are going to rotate and turn over. And so your foot's going to be kind of like an extension of like what your hips do. It's going to drag on the ground if it's on the back, but like, and the one thing to, for, for that I remind myself is that just because major leaguers do a thing doesn't mean they couldn't be better at what they're doing. Right. When you throw mm-hmm. 95 miles per hour at age 21, no one keeps striving to get you to throw 98. Not really. So to say, like, you, if you throw just a premium velocity at an early age, people stop trying to screw with you, and they try, stop trying to perfect you. So it is, it is possible that Justin Verlander's mechanics could improve a little bit. And maybe if his back foot stay on the ground, he might throw another mile per hour harder. Like, we don't know that for sure, and no one's ever going to test it. But the fact does remain that when so many major leaguers are major leaguers, like literally the best on the planet – and they're like relatively staying relatively healthy. Like guys like Justin Verlander and many others who are big league veterans, their bodies have proven that they can like do it and stay healthy. Um, there's something to be said for that. Cause it's not like, like you said, if, if 70% of big leaguers do this wrong thing, is it really wrong? That's the thing. Like, what are we, what are we saying? It's, it's what essentially, are we saying wrong? It's essentially, essentially the right thing. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to find the balance um, of like, could they be better? Or is this just like a completely acceptable thing to do? So, yeah. Go ahead. yeah. And yeah, I, I think with the whole foot down thing, it, it, when I, it doesn't matter if the foot is down, I don't think. I think what matters is like if you're making an attempt to keep the foot down, 
so some guys, whether it's because of uh, like a hip extension range of motion that they just don't have, uh, they just can't keep that back foot down. They don't have the range of motion to do it. But like, if you look at Verlander, for example, like he doesn't keep the back foot down, but his back leg stays fairly straight. And what I think is happening there is his right glute is contracting hard as he's throwing the ball, which is driving his leg back straight. Um, but he doesn't actually stay on the ground because I don't, maybe he doesn't have the mobility to do that. But the idea is that his right glute is contracting hard to provide stability to his pelvis when he throws. So that's an important thing with throwing and hitting is you have to be able to stabilize your pelvis and you have to resist rotation and you have to be able to decelerate. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the main things that happens with these elite throwers is they decelerate their pelvis really well because that back glute contracts really hard. Now, whether that results in their foot staying on the ground or not, I think maybe it depends on uh, their stride direction. I think it depends on their hip range of motion. So if you take somebody that doesn't have the requisite hip range of motion and you try to force them to keep their back foot on the ground, I think that could actually be pretty, pretty damaging because now they're not going to be able to get all their way down to their front foot when they're throwing, they won't be able to like rotate properly. So I think the idea of forcing people to keep the back foot down is not a good idea. But I think the idea of teaching people to stabilize their pelvis is a good idea. But the foot staying down is a result of you stabilizing your pelvis and having the requisite range of motion. It's not because you're forcing your foot to stay down, if that makes sense. Well, and, and for people listening, you should be clear that we're talking about like the back foot off by like small amounts. I think all mm -hmm. of us here would agree that like I've trained pitchers who their, their front knee is like almost hitting their their stride knee or their back knees like they're way off the ground like leg at 90 degrees they're like a foot off the ground that's the result of like bad mechanics a poor weight shift like everything's flying forward way too soon mm -hmm. that's not what we're talking about but like when you see like so a lot of these big league pitchers and i'd encourage anyone listening to go on youtube and just google slow motion and name a major leaguer you'll see like when some of these guys have their foot off the ground it's a small amount Whereas with youth players, again, you've probably seen them, and I have certainly seen them. Sometimes they, their back leg is like flying forward, and it's because they don't know how to use their hips. They're, you know, their weight's leaking. They're doing lots of things they need to fix. And when they, you fix those, typically their back foot will stay, will not ever be like completely on the ground again, but it'll get a lot closer, and that back leg will be more extended, which is what we want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's kind of like a, it's something that happens – it's going to happen naturally. Like when you're teaching a kid how to throw, right? You're not, if you're teaching him like, Hey, try and keep that back foot on the ground as you're throwing, like you're probably going to affect things in his throw that are going to be detrimental to either the velocity, the accuracy, just the movement of his own body, as opposed to like, Hey, take this ball, throw it and let's watch what your body does. And then try and like fix the problem. And like a pro, I, I want to say proactive way. It's probably the incorrect word, but uh, similar to teaching hitting, like I'll say something to try and get a kid's whole body to re move how I want it to move without telling him exactly what I want him to do. Cause if he's focusing on the one aspect that I need him to change, it might change three other aspects of his swing that I don't want to change, or it might change the intent of the swing or, you know, certain avenues, like you want to take certain avenues to get him to the correct, you know, the, the end goal without affecting everything he's already doing correctly. Um, and anything, I think, you know, if you're shooting free throws and you're like, Hey, you need to finish, you know, through the, through the basketball. Well, if they're just trying to finish through the basketball, they're probably going to shoot the ball way off 
where they're trying to actually make it. Whereas a kid who makes free throws consistently, okay, we need you to do something a little bit different. You're probably going to make them even more consistently. Like let's try and get him to that point as opposed to getting him to focus on what he does wrong. Yeah. Well, and back to point a little bit ago, analogies can be helpful tools to help people understand. Like for me, some of the, the side work that I do is in uh, like the aerospace sector and this is some of the content stuff that I do. And I have a tough time having no background understanding like airflow and like the way it interacts with like, like I am like writing technical stuff and I like don't understand it. So it helps me to get analogies to like, Oh, okay. It's kind of like this. And then you can like put the terminology, but like in, in baseball there, that punching analogy, it like makes sense, but it, but it's probably not really that applicable. There's some similarities, but not many. The other one that was really problematic that I wrote an article a long time ago about was um, comparing, it was basically like the case for holds, which have since pretty much lost favor, I know now. Uh, But people were saying, oh, you should do holds. Like you should put a weight on your hand or like hold onto the ball after you throw because tennis players don't have arm problems, right? And it's like on the surface, you're like, why didn't I think about that? But then when you really think about it, which is what I wrote in the article, I'm like, let's think of some other things in tennis that might be accounting for the fact that they don't have arm problems. Number one, they hit backhands. We don't throw anything backwards in baseball, right? Maybe that's working muscles in a more like balanced way that we don't get in baseball. So we definitely can't say that it's just holding onto the racket anymore because there's another major variable that could be accounting for it, right? Also, the tennis swing, the tennis serve is much different than a baseball throw. It's absolutely not the same motion. I looked it up on slow motion not even it's much more like a volleyball serve like you go up the shoulder externally rotates but then the elbow comes in front and you hit it more like a tricep press this is like that one on the surface gained a lot of traction i wrote that article as a counterpoint i'm like no this is not a good analogy just not there's way too many other variables at play to say we should do this in baseball because tennis is doing this it's a good idea to think about in general like oh maybe there's merit to this but to say that this is a good reason nah there's a lot of other stuff going on so analogies are I'm sure. Well, I'm sure tennis, mm-hmm. I'm sure the swinging of the, the motion of tennis is going to strengthen everything in your shoulder, different angles, right? Holding on to the racket, you know, backhand, forehand, but it's not a, it's not an apples to apples comparison by any stretch. No. And you're trying to say, this is the, like, they're basically trying to extract the one variable, which is holding on to a thing after you release it, after you hit the ball. That was the one variable they said was the important one. Whereas like, there's so many other variables here, backhands again, like all this other stuff. How can you say that's the one variable when there's so many other at play? Like there's no way you can isolate them to, to, mm-hmm. to compare the injury injury rates between these two sports, tennis players, not athletes and baseball players, not athletes. Um, so Andrew, as we wrap up, where can people follow up with you and uh, how can they keep in touch with what you're doing on the web and do you have any programs, hint, hint, with a good buddy of you coming, coming out soon? Yeah, funny you should mention that. We do um, – uh, Dan Blewett and I are working on an online training program called Early Work for Baseball and Softball Players. Um, it's a remote training program. It's really good. I handle all the programming. Dan doesn't touch it. That's how you know it's good. Dan, handles all, the, uh, <laughs> Dan handles all the technological stuff. I handle the training. Uh, we're going to be coming out with that shortly. As soon as we finish up taking videos of all the exercises, we can upload to the internet for you guys. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Andrew underscore Sachs, I think. Uh, on Instagram, I'm coach underscore Andrew underscore Sachs. Uh, you can also follow the Prime Sports Performance uh, Instagram account. 
Um, I don't think I have a Facebook, but you can, you can try to look me up on there. Maybe I'll accept your friend request. Maybe I won't. Um, but yeah, just keep your eyes open for the early work training app coming out with uh, Coach Dan Blewett and Andrew Sachs. Should be, should be pretty good. Yeah, this whole podcast was just a promotion. It was just, no, we, uh, <laughs> well, can we establish we've, we've that I set up, I set this podcast up not knowing Dan and Andrew were best friends for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, really? I didn't know Bobby, that. Yeah, Bobby just was like looking at who was fighting each other on the web and was like, hey, you that's, like your, honestly, that's angry. all I was doing. I was <laughs> just, angry. I was, I was creeping, show? I was like creeping on Twitter trying to see like, who, oh, who's arguing with who? Let's have them on the podcast. And Andrew's, yeah, I was Andrew's like, it's a little weird that Bobby's texting me about this instead of Dan, but yeah, yeah Bobby, it's Bobby told me, and I was like, wait, <laughs> that, you know, I know him, right? And he's like, no, what? I've I've known Dan for longer than I've known anybody in my life besides my parents, I think. Like, and, we, yeah, we were yeah, and you're welcome for having you on the podcast. That Dan Thank was, you. you know what? And now that I think about it, Dan was against this from the start, uh, and I had to reach out. He? Oh my god, <laughs> the ultimate betrayal. But, yeah, then, exactly. but then I got pumpkin spice creamer in my coffee today, and I, and I really came around. The basic, the basic side in me was pacified, <laughs> and here man, we are. you got your hoodie on, you got your pumpkin spice. Man, you're just leaning into fall hard, huh? Who am I? I know. Yeah, hoodies and pumpkin <laughs> spice. Well, thank you for, for being here. Be sure to check out. And for those, uh, for those of you who don't know, Andrew's Instagram is really good. He puts out lots of consistent training content on his Instagram, especially, and he puts a lot of them on Twitter as well. But you should definitely give him a follow on both of those. There's lots of helpful info. It's not just uh, you know, him retweeting baseball or Orioles info or any of that. Like, there's actually a lot of really good content from both of his accounts. So be sure to follow him there. Um, and yeah, again, this was not a promotion, but he and I do have a training <laughs> program coming out soon. So if you are looking for a really good strength program, uh, jump on my email list. You can find, um, ways to sign up with that on my website and you'll be informed of when it launches probably a couple weeks. We actually have a lot of the videos done, but not all of them. So anyway, all right. Thanks mm-hmm. for being here. We will see you on Friday for our next installment of the morning brushback. Say goodbye, Bobby. See ya. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>